The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So I've been um, uh, looking at Samadhi, this part of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught. Last week I just reviewed that path. But just uh, for tonight's sake, we just need to remember there are three parts to the path. There's the development of uh, right view and right intention, the development of ethical conduct, which is divided into right effort, I'm sorry, right actions, right livelihood, right speech. And then there's samadhi, this sometimes called the area of concentration, that it's more specifically, it's a purification of the mind. So we're, we're using our discernment, paying attention to the mind, using the mind to pay attention to the mind, and learning how to cultivate wholesome states of mind. And in a way, this is just as much our responsibility as learning to live harmoniously with our partners and friends and in our community and to develop wisdom, you know, to have an appropriate view of how to hold this experience of being a human being. We really need to develop um, develop our skill in all three of these areas. So we've begun to talk about developing samadhi or concentration or non-distractedness in life, what that looks like as a way of becoming more competent, more skillful. And what is often not talked about as much, but it's probably as important as any aspect of samadhi, is that it feels good. It's really healing to touch samadhi, to have the mind purified of what's agitating, what's irritating the mind, what's weighing the mind down. And, you know, we more than anything that we are identified with is this idea that I'm a suffering human being. We very much take our experience of being weighed down or burdened by life, upset, agitated by life, excited by life, all the different flavors of agitation in the mind. We just take it for granted. We think it sort of comes with being a human being. And so we either have a mistrust or we're just totally unaware of what the alternative might be, a feeling of peacefulness, that bliss of non-agitation, the, hap the happiness of non-agitation in the mind. And this is the taste of samadhi. Concentration has a very particular taste. So again, when I use concentration, I'm using it in a very specific way because we can be concentrated on, you know, all kinds of things like scoring with the person we want to score with or concentrated on Obama winning the election. or But those that kind of concentration can be quite agitating. So when I'm talking about concentration, it's the mind coming together, but it's coming together around something that's wholesome, not agitating. There isn't a lot of greed or aversion in the mind in the concentration, in the coming together. 
And that experience is inherently pleasant, but it's it's pleasant in a way that's not dependent on external things. It's like we may be walking in the woods on a nice fall day, and the mind might really come together in this way, but the the pleasure isn't because the leaves are falling down or the weather is warm. The pleasure is because of the quality of the mind, that the mind is not agitated. It's not, um, there's no constriction, there's no tension, there's no weight in the mind. So it's that lightness, it's that lack of agitation, the lack of activity itself that's really pleasant. I remember one teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, talks about how it takes a while to cultivate a taste for this kind of happiness. Because, you know, if we eat really bad potato chips for a long time, it's like nothing else tastes good. Have you ever noticed that? Like if you have a really strong, generally processed and overly seasoned food, then even really good foods don't taste good anymore. And this is a little bit how we've been living, where we've been using a lot of gross forms of agitation, like a horror film or a, you know something exciting, like thinking Obama's going to save the world, you know, and just that imagining, or whatever gets our uh, juice going for us, whatever that might be, we use this kind of very powerful gross stimulus. And then all of a sudden we become oblivious or unaware to more subtle kinds of happiness, like the happiness of a quiet, peaceful, integrated mind. I mean, it's so hard to talk about because even when I say a quiet, peaceful mind, we immediately think we know that experience. But what we imagine usually is like when we're sitting in our lazy boy and the mind's kind of calm. But it's also dull. But the the uh, the bliss of concentration isn't a dull mind at all. It's a hyper-energetic mind. It's a very awake, vibrant, alive heart or mind. But it's also still and quiet. And that's the experience we are less familiar with, when the mind is very alive, very bright, very energized, but it has... <clears throat> very little or no agitation in it. So the experience is an experience of being very alive without the agitation, without needing to do anything with that energy. Just the feeling of being alive. But in a, in this sort of deeper or uh, internal internal kind of way. I'm spending a little time talking about this because for two reasons. One, we, we need to create incentives to do this work because, like I mentioned earlier, our society, our culture, sort of draws us into more gross kinds of stimulation. And we, we get addicted to that level of superficiality or grossness and then become relatively oblivious to the, the, the deeper but more subtle kind of happiness. And, even more importantly, we need to understand this principle in order to do our meditation practice. So, for example, you know, one of the classic techniques that I often uh, 
use when I'm guiding people, like at the beginning of our Wednesday night session, is just being mindful of the body, mindful of the breath in the body. But the whole way to develop this practice is to begin to notice and then tune in to the subtle happiness. So that's not often our experience because just sitting down after our busy lives, mostly what we open up to is just the residual of having been busy all day long or busy for the last couple decades, (laughs) too busy for the last five decades or whatever it's been for you. And all that cumulative stress and the cumulative uh, tension in the body that's just below the surface. So as soon as we quiet down, we either slide right into unconsciousness or we feel how much tension, how much mental and physical tension there is. But if we can stick with the technique a little bit, which is to not react to the whatever unpleasant sensations we notice, and to keep turning the attention to what is ordinary, like the sensations of sitting, the sensations of the breath moving in the body. But if we can have some continuity with sensation, even unpleasant sensation, there are actually some advantages to paying attention to unpleasant sensation. So even if you're having a sit where you can't even pay attention to the breath because the pain in the back is more predominant, or the restlessness in the body is more predominant, that's not a pro- doesn't have to be a problem. Because the nice thing about unpleasant sensations is it gets our attention. You know, when we're just with the ordinary breath, it's very easy for the attention to slide off because it doesn't seem that important. It doesn't seem like it's calling out for attention. The pain is calling out for attention. So whether we're paying attention to the ordinary sensations of the breath coming in and out of the nostrils or that feeling of expansion and contraction in the abdominal area, or you're feeling some discomfort in the body, pain in the back, pain in the knee, or more generalized tension in the body. All we need to do is connect and sustain the attention. Because if we're looking at the sensation of the breath or the sensation of pain in a direct way, then that means we're not reacting, we're just allowing it to be. See, to really see pain as sensation means we're going beyond the reactivity, beyond the sense that I have to control the pain, I have to defend myself, I have to distance myself from the pain, but we're allowing the awareness and the object of awareness, whether it's the sensations of the breath or sensations of pain in the body, we're allowing the knowing and what's known to come together. That's, that's a way of thinking about samadhi, that unification of subject and object, of the knowing and what's being known. So instead of our normal mode, which is I'm the knower over here, knowing the pain in the back or knowing the breath over here, which creates a lot of room for reactivity. but Developing skill and mindfulness is learning how to just let knowing know what it's knowing. Basically, to not do anything extra. So that unification isn't so much doing something special, it's really not doing a lot of things. What we're not doing is we're not reacting to the breath. 
like if we see just the ordinary sensations of the air touching the skin and the nostrils, right? So we're just knowing that touching experience. Well, one of the things we do when we're like this, Mark, knowing the breath, is thoughts come up like, this is stupid. You know, it's just this silly sensation of touching. And so the mind looks for something more interesting to pay attention to. And then we're off, we're spinning, right? But if we can, with if we develop the skill to not do all that extra stuff, then it can, then the mind gets really simple. It's just knowing, knowing that touching. Or if you're feeling the breath down in your belly, it's just knowing, knowing the experience of expansion and contraction and the abdominal wall. Just that feeling of movement of the belly as it rises and falls. And in that simplicity, we begin to touch that happiness, that inner happiness. You can call it bliss. That's often the word we use. Or uh, more specifically, pity is the Pali word for rapture. Joyful interest, sometimes it's translated as. But it's an inner happiness, a very distinct inner happiness that on the one hand is very pleasant, but on the other hand is arising not because of what we're experiencing as much as what we're not doing. It's not that feeling the movement of the belly is like special or feeling the touching here or paying attention to the pain is special. But what's special is what the mind isn't doing. The mind is really simple, knowing, knowing the object. It's in that simplicity that's the actual cause for the happiness, for that bliss or that rapture to rise. It arises due to the simplicity of the mind, the purity of the mind. Purity in Buddhist sense means there's not a lot of greed or craving in the mind. There's not a lot of aversion or irritation in the mind. There's not a lot of delusion. Delusion means not seeing things clearly. So we're not misperceiving. We're actually seeing clearly. So when there's non-greed, non-aversion and non-delusion, then there's bliss. And the reason this is so important is this becomes our barometer for developing uh, deeper states of meditation which support insight, transforming our understanding, our developing wisdom, which is the whole point. I mean, it's nice enough to develop moments, maybe even many moments of real inner happiness, real peace, real bliss. But the real benefit for developing states of calm, this inner happiness, the real benefit is that it promotes insight. We actually see things about the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, that we haven't recognized in our lives because our minds are just too scattered. We're, they're too superficial. We're always orienting toward what's on the surface of life, the external world. And we're rarely using the power of attention to look at the mind itself or to look at the heart itself. We're looking out there into the world. Because we've been taught that happiness is out here. If we get the right house, if we get the right partner, if we have the right experience, if we have the right body. And so we're, we're in a sense fixated on the external and in meditative, in the spiritual life, we're learning to turn the attention back. But it takes a lot of practice because of the 
amount of conditioning we have to be externally oriented. So we're learning to make the mind really simple. We call that purification or samadhi, the unification of mind. It's a specific kind of concentration. And we use usually ordinary experience, but when pain predominates, then use pain. Because pain, like I said, it helps. There are advantages to pain because it gets our attention. Now the disadvantage, of course, of pain is that we have a deep habit to try to defend ourselves against the pain. You know, like to distance ourselves or to, we have this deep habit of sort of muscling up when we have discomfort. And so in order to have samadhi, to really the, the knowing to come together with the experience of pain, we have to not let those old habits get triggered. So we're feeling the impulse to tighten up, but we remind ourselves, we just relax. Can this be okay? I can always, you know, get up and run out of the room if I decide this is dangerous. But right now it's just knee pain. It's just this. Maybe it's possible to just relax with this knee pain, to relax with the sensations of the breath, to relax with the back pain, to relax with restlessness, to relax with dullness. See, it doesn't matter whether it's a mental experience or a physical experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. In general, if there's nothing predominant, we work with something ordinary, like the sensations of the body sitting, or even specific, more specifically, the movement of the breath in the body. That's all we need to know. But if we can't work with the breath, or with this, uh, just the sensations of sitting, whether they're gross or subtle, then let the attention go to what's predominant. But if it's mental, don't go to the content, because then you're just spin, you know, okay, let me think about, let me meditate on why that person said that to me today. Well, in about a half a second, we'll be, we'll forget we're meditating, and we'll just be lost in our thoughts about what happened earlier today. So if there is some mental content that's predominant, what we do is we just step back, step down rather, into the emotional charge that's associated with that content. And then specifically, we pay attention to the unpleasantness or the pleasantness of that emotional charge. So we're actually paying attention to the visceral part of that thinking. We're not actively thinking, but we're also not trying to get rid of the thoughts. We just let them, in a sense, be in the background. And we're really tuning into the emotion and the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the emotion in that moment. Right? So that's how we work with mental experience. Basically, we're translating it into subtle, visceral sensation, right? Because when thoughts are really uh, attracting the attention, compelling the attention to look there, then they're charged. And that charge is something that can be felt, right? In that moment, right? So we just pay attention to the charge, and especially its pleasantness or unpleasantness. And this is how we develop that continuity of attention, that purity of mind. Because when we're paying attention to something that's unpleasant, let's say it's a painful memory, if we can pay attention to the charge and the unpleasantness of the charge, then we really can have that moment or moments of samadhi, where there's knowing, knowing the charge, and it, the mind gets really simple 
And even though there's a knowing of something unpleasant, the bliss will arise. There will be the happiness of the mind being really simple. And then you can actually pay attention to that. So you're not, it's not even that you're moving your attention away from the, the pain of the charge. You're still there. You know, the memory maybe is still there in the background and the charge is there, the pain of the charge is there. But now right there in noticing the charge is just the pleasantness of being concentrated, the pleasantness of the mind being really simple. And we're noticing that. So in, in this way, what, what we'd say is that we're noticing the bliss of concentration when it arises, the bliss of samadhi when it arises. So we have to begin to notice it even when it's very subtle, not so obvious, just the, the very ordinary but you know not so distinct feeling of calm. Or some people, what gets their attention is just the feeling of wholeness, like we know what it's like to be scattered or the mind to be dispersed, but what's it? No, do we ever notice when it's not that way? We tend to be oblivious, but we're not always so distracted or dispersed, right? So what does it feel like when the mind has a wholeness to it, a non-dispersed feeling to it, feeling of like being here, now, collected, centered, grounded? So this is the beginning states of that bliss. But we tend to not notice that or to have sort of a sophisticated awareness or maybe a better word would be a sensitivity, uh, the, the ability to be intimate with that feeling of centered, grounded, wholeness that arises at times in our lives. Not just when we're meditating, of course. This can happen anywhere in our life. And the whole point of this particular set of teachings is to begin to understand the Eightfold Path, these three parts of the Eightfold Path in daily life, because that's where we are most of the time. We're not sitting most of the time. So you might notice this just when you wash the dishes and you're just washing the dishes. And there's just the activity of the mind that knows, the heart that knows, knowing the warmth of the water, the sensations of movement, the sounds, just that simplicity of the mind not reacting, not spinning, just the wholeness of the mind knowing this and nothing extra, you might notice that feeling. But as I mentioned before, it's, a, it's not a state we're used to, so we tend to, we tend to mess it up. We stir it up, we bring in thoughts, we plan. We're not content with that simplicity. In a way, we mistrust it because it's unfamiliar. Not that it's dangerous in any way, but it's unfamiliar, so it's a little scary. Like anything unfamiliar, anything novel, it's scary. But once we're familiar with it, it can become quite beautiful. So in this section of Samadhi and the Eightfold Path, the Buddha talks about three skills that we develop. Effort, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So for the next several weeks, I'm going to be talking specifically about the skills. 
And the way to think about this is in the most ordinary way. So as I'm talking about this over the next five weeks or so, take these ordinary situations like washing your dishes, driving your car, walking the dog, all the things we do as human beings, brushing our teeth, sitting down, standing up, and then apply them. Apply the techniques or the skills that the Buddha is talking about in these activities. So last week I started talking about the first part of samadhi, which is right effort. So again, you have three parts, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. These are three parts of the Eightfold Path that make up samadhi, this unification of mind. So right effort is usually described in this way. And I have a handout which uh, maybe somebody can put these at the back of the table before people leave. So when I'm doing announcements, maybe, Stacy, if you put these in the back. And I have the four exertions. This is how the Buddha most often would talk about right effort. And the four exertions, just to review all four, but then I'll dig into the first one, is preventing unwholesome, agitating qualities to come into the mind. And then when there are unwholesome, agitating qualities in the mind, like greediness, how to abandon them. So we need to prevent unwholesome tendencies from coming into the mind. When they are there, we need to learn how to abandon them. And then we need to learn how to develop wholesome qualities, like, remember I mentioned that uh, the wholesome mind is hyper-energetic. So one of the things we want to develop is that wholesome energy or alertness. And we also want to develop calmness. And we also want to develop a wholesome kind of investigation or interest. So there are a lot of wholesome qualities we want to learn how to develop. And then the fourth is how to maintain them. So we have preventing unwholesome states, abandoning unwholesome states that are already in the mind, already present, developing wholesome states that haven't yet come into the mind, and maintaining wholesome states that are in the mind, or wholesome qualities that are in the mind. These are the four exertions. And the Buddha says that when you get good at these skills of abandoning, preventing, developing, maintaining, then he's got this great line where he says, excuse me, just as the Ganges River flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues the four right exertions, she flows to unbinding, slopes and inclines to unbinding. That's a, one way that the word of freedom or liberation is translated. So that like uh, sometimes the Buddha uses the image that the basic problem of a, of a suffering human being is the mind is entangled. So then the solution is what allows the mind to untangle. You know, the entanglement of all the different impulses of greed, aversion, and confusion. That's the entanglement. And to abandon, to sort of not feed, not reinforce, the mind's tendency towards greed, anger, and delusion, that is the untangling process or the unbinding process. So if we develop these four exertions, just like the river flows naturally, we will flow naturally toward 
more freedom, more ease in life, more natural skill in life. It's not like we work really hard, we become sort of uh, super competent in a sort of ego-based way, like I'm really on top of it, I'm really in control, I'm not going to be angry, I'm not going to be greedy. It's organic. The whole point, I mean, what good would liberation be if we had to work hard to be liberated? The whole idea of enlightenment or liberation is a movement toward effortlessness, the freedom, the goodness of it, you know, the kindness that flows from liberation, the compassion, the wisdom. It needs to be effortless. It has to be organic, like a river flows effortlessly down its slope. But there is some effort that that sort of sets this awakening in motion. And it's the effort to abandon unwholesome states, to prevent them from coming in the first place, to develop wholesome qualities, and to maintain wholesome qualities. And that's what we'll spend the next few weeks talking about. I spent a little bit of time last week talking about abandoning, but tonight I want to dig in a little bit more with preventing. How do we prevent unwholesome states that aren't yet in the mind, how do we prevent them from arising? Like now, being here at Common Ground, maybe, you know, our minds are relatively pure. There's not a lot of greed. <coughs> maybe every once in a while, there's a feeling of greed, like wanting to be home in bed or wanting to be having our meal or, you know, wanting to be on vacation that starts next week. Or some aversion, like not liking the pain in the body that we have, not liking the temperature of the room, not liking the feeling that you're a bad meditator. But generally, you know, this is a pretty neutral experience, maybe even pleasant experience. Otherwise, why would we keep coming back? So we can just notice that, but how do, but we know that at some point down the road, there will be afflictive states coming. So how can we prevent that from happening? Like if we get caught in traffic driving home and we get irritated, like what could we do? What could we be doing that would prevent the mind from getting caught up in irritation or caught up in some painful memory or caught up in some hopefulness, you know, where we get greedy about wanting things to turn out a particular way in our lives? What could we do to be preventing that? And the word that the Buddha often uses, guarding. Now you have to remember that the Buddha was raised as a, in the warrior caste in India. And he was a prince and trained in all the martial arts. So the combination of being in that caste, being a prince, a lot of the ways that he used language kind of reflects that martial influence. But we have to, it's useful, but we have to just understand the context and do some translation maybe. So, you know, he would use the image of a fortress with six gates, six entrances. And then mindfulness would guard each of the gates, guard the entrance of the eyes, the ears, the tongue, you know, the sense of taste, the sense of smell, the tactile sense, the mind sense. So all the five physical senses in the mind, the thinking, imagining mind. We use mindfulness to guard. 
But it's not like, you know, we're not letting anything in. And the Buddha even said this once. There's a young, very bright Brahmin student, and the Buddha, the student said to the Buddha, you know, we have this teacher. So the Brahmins were the priestly caste, uh, still, even to this day in India. And so this Brahmin youth who was getting educated by his guru, his teacher, was taught how to control the senses. And so the Buddha asked him, well, what did your teacher tell you? What did your guru tell you? And he said, well, when you're seeing something you don't see, when you're hearing something, you practice not hearing it. So basically cutting off the senses. And the Buddha kind of scolded him and said, well, then a blind and deaf person would be quite skilled in this way. And, uh, that, and then he says, well, let me teach you the right way to guard your senses. And it's not about not being able to see or not being able to hear or not having uh, tactile experience or smells or tastes or not having thoughts. That's not the way to guard the senses. The way to guard the senses is to be there in the moment when seeing is happening, to know seeing is happening, and to not allow the seeing to be more than it is. So to keep the scene very direct, very intimate, just as it is. Hearing is just as it is. The feeling of touch is just what it is. Even thoughts are understood as just thoughts. We're not getting lost in the thoughts. Normally, when we see something, we very quickly translate the visual experience into a concept. And then we stop seeing very quickly. I mean, in a sense, we're still seeing, but what's dominating the mind is the concept, the interpretation of what we've just seen. So we change the visual experience into a concept, and then we obsess or fixate on that concept. And we stop seeing, basically. And this is true with all of our senses. And then when a thought arises, we rarely even know there's a thought, and it's, it's like this. We get deluded in a sense, pulled into the content. And then we're sort of lost in the thought. We're not aware that thoughts are just thoughts or mental images are just images. So guarding the senses really is just another word for being mindful. Mindfulness is this bare attention. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Eightfold Path. It's a wonderful little book. He's a Buddhist monk from Brooklyn who spent most of his adult life as a monk in Sri Lanka. Now that he's retired in his 70s, he's uh, living in a Buddhist monastery in, uh, I think, New Jersey, or it could be right across the border in, in Pennsylvania, in northeast Pennsylvania, but somewhere in that general area called Bodhi Monastery. And this is his section on the, uh, the effort, right effort. He says, when mindfulness is absent, the latent defilements, these unskillful tendencies of the mind, like greediness or fear or aversion, the latent defilements pushing for an opportunity to emerge will motivate a wrong consideration. So this is how it is. Because we've practiced greediness, craving, and all the different kinds of aversion for so long, it's like a well-developed habit in the mind. It's just waiting for an excuse 
to emerge, that inclination. So as I'm seeing things, as soon as I see something that's irritating to me, it's like an excuse for aversion, that tendency of the mind to get irritated, to be averse, to be fearful. It just just arises. Or if I see something attractive, that tendency to want, to crave, to imagine getting, it just comes very quickly. Just because of its habit, the momentum of habit, it's just waiting for an excuse to emerge. And so when it does emerge, it motivates wrong consideration. And by that, one will grasp the sign of the object, explore its details, and thereby give the defilements their opportunity on account of greed one will become fascinated by an agreeable object. On account of aversion, one will become repelled by the disagreeable object. So this is the thing. When we see something pleasant, like if we saw an attractive person in the room now, or saw somebody wearing a sweater we'd like, or you know, a pair of socks that we really like, you know, we see that, and the mind immediately translate that agreeable object into a concept. I want that. That's a concept. That's a story. There's a me who wants that. And then, as I keep seeing, the visual experience of seeing the socks reinforces the desire, the craving. So there's like a feedback loop is born. Because we're, we're focusing specifically, it's like all we see is the part we like, and we don't notice the parts we don't like. And then that triggers the liking, the wanting, which makes us look at what we want, the part that we like. And it feeds. It's like a positive feedback loop, positive in the sense that the energy builds. We get more entranced, more removed from the present moment. And this is due to not guarding the senses. We're basically indulging in a way that whips up attachment. But, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, when one applies mindfulness to the sensory encounter, one nips the cognitive process in the bud before it can evolve into the stages that stimulate the dormant taints, right? The dormant tendency toward aversion or greed. Mindfulness holds the hindrances in check by keeping the mind at the level of what is sensed, right, that bare attention. It rivets awareness on the given, preventing the mind from embellishing the datum with ideas born of greed, aversion, and delusion. Then, with this lucent awareness as a guide, the mind can proceed to comprehend the object as it is without being led astray. Often the Buddha talks about mindfulness and wisdom working together. And this is, we, you know, in the West often use mindfulness in this way. Like we call this a mindfulness meditation center. But when we say mindfulness, it isn't just the awareness. It's awareness with discernment. Sometimes uh, the word that gets translated as appropriate attention. So it's not just attention, but it's the attention is noticing what's being the, the object, noticing the present moment object in a way that's not stimulating 
the tendency towards greed and aversion and delusion. And again, delusion just means not seeing it clearly. So this is a great skill. And you can practice. Practice with easy, uh, pleasant objects that aren't too pleasant and aversive objects that aren't too aversive. You know, the next time you're taking a nice walk and you see some dog poop that someone didn't pick up, you know, it's actually a good object because we're deeply, most of us, are deeply conditioned to not like feces. So we can just stand there and or sit and just observe and practice noticing how the tendency toward aversion is getting triggered. It's like a, there's that habit just waiting to be activated. It's in a sense, because it's been practiced so much through our lives, it's just it's got all this potential energy just waiting to explode onto the scene. So but but the only thing that will prevent it from coming onto the scene is observing the feces as it actually is. It's just shape and color, right? And then maybe smell, but the smell is just smell. And we can really leave it at that level. Now, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but we're not attending to the unpleasantness. We're not fixating the mind, oh, oh, you know, just seeing, just smelling, just what it is. And you'll see that there's a, the mind remains calm and peaceful. Now, this is why sitting practice is such a useful way to develop skill for daily life. Because when we're sitting, basically it's like a miniature or microcosm of daily life practice. We have sensations when we're sitting, just like when we're walking or doing, going about our day. But when we're sitting, there's just a little bit less going on. And it tends towards more neutral experience, where when we're out in the day, more kind of diversity of experience. Lots of, you know, extremely pleasant or extremely unpleasant, as well as neutral. But when we're sitting, it's mostly neutral. So when we start having some unpleasant sensation like an itch or throbbing in the knee, before it gets too much, then that's a really good place to just welcome it in and then to notice how we can guard the sense door. So we're feeling the tactile experience the sensations in the body with that throbbing or that tickle of the fly on the skin. We're feeling it, and we're feeling that impulse toward aversion, but we're just not going there. And the way we don't go there isn't this kind of mental tension, I'm not going there. It's more subtle than that. It's by attending. This is the preventing strategy, remember. So before the mind becomes aversive, so this is a strategy before the mind becomes aversion, aversive. We, the way we prevent the mind from becoming aversive is by attending to the object in the most direct, simple way, seeing it as it actually is. Then practice this with pleasant objects. You're really hungry, and finally you get served at the restaurant, or finally your food, your cooking is ready. Then it's really nice to sit there observing the smells or opening to the smells, opening to the visual experience and feeling the craving. But just being there with the whole experience without letting the mind fixate on the pleasantness. What it does is it, it the mind's tendencies to begin to imagine eating it before we're eating it. 
And then it's like the mind doesn't really know the difference between our imagining and the actual experience. So when we start imagining having the ice cream or eating the pasta, then it's like uh, it just whips up the craving, you know, wanting more, wanting to chew faster, wanting to swallow faster, wanting to taste it again and again. But if we just attend to the smell and the scene as it actually is, the mind will remain calm. Greed will not be triggered. And we'll, we'll learn a different way of being when we're around pleasant experience. It's that gives us a whole other option when we're around pleasant and unpleasant experience. When we get skillful at you know, things that are slightly pleasant and slightly unpleasant, that we can practice with things that are moderately unpleasant and moderately pleasant. And then even with really unpleasant and really pleasant experience. Not losing the equanimity. And I'll just end, uh, maybe I'll save that for next week because I want to keep a little time to share in the group. And we'll spend a little bit more time with the first half of right exertion, preventing unwholesome states, unwholesome tendencies from arising, and abandoning. And you can take one of these handouts that Stacy will put on the back table. But for now, we have about uh, eight minutes to hear from each other. If you have some experience that you'd like to share with the group in your own attempts at preventing and abandoning, or questions about the talk tonight, about right effort, what comes to mind? Yes, let's say your names. My name's Johanna. I was wondering if you had any suggestions for how to apply some of the things you've been talking about um, to our relationships with other people. Um, I was having a pretty painful, difficult conversation with a friend a couple days ago and could see myself getting caught up in a lot of this and was thinking that um, it, if I were by myself, having the time to kind of watch my own thoughts, that maybe mm -hmm. I would be able to work with it a lot better. Um, but in the moment, it was really hard to to try to work with it and try to be present with my friend at the same time and, you know, yeah. acting. So. Yeah. Did you hear Joanna in the back? Johanna? Johanna. Johanna. Did you hear her in the back? Um, she was talking about how she finds it difficult when she had a difficult interaction a few days ago and when it's there there are intense interactions finds it difficult practicing and just wondering if I had any tips about that and uh, well there's two two strategies I mean there are many things to do but two basic strategies one is now you can still practice because when we've had an intense interaction it's still alive in us I mean there's some unfinished business probably and so when the memory comes up, like I said a few moments ago, when we imagine something, like even a memory, we reimagine the event as a memory, it's the mind doesn't really distinguish that from the actual event. It's like reliving it to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean our uh, imagining is exactly the same way, but it's as if we're living what we're imagining. So then that pain, that discomfort or agitation you felt will come alive again as you remember it. And then you can practice. And you can actually set the intention to practice and then intentionally bring the memory up. And then feel what you feel when you bring the memory up. And then stop intentionally remembering at that point 
and put your attention to the pain and see if you can uh, be equanimous and bring that bare mindful attention to the pain that's still alive in you, that still has some momentum, without stimulating the need to think about it, to sort of spin with it. And uh, there will be, you know, even with some distance now, two days distance, the person nowhere to be seen, it's still, you'll probably still find it challenging to just be mindful of the pain without the mind. As soon as the mindfulness weakens or wavers, the mind will be there in the content very quickly. But that's okay. Notice that. Then you have to practice abandoning. It's too late to practice preventing at that point. Then we have to practice unhooking. So maybe noticing how unwholesome it is to be indulging in these angry thoughts, for example. That's one strategy. Or maybe to have some compassion for how sticky this relationship is, how much pain there is for you, probably how much pain there is for this other person. So bringing compassion is is another way to unhook from it. But in any case, and we'll talk more about different ways to abandon, you get yourself back to a more neutral place where you, you have unhooked, and then you can practice again. Like just feeling the pain, being intimate with the pain with that bare attention without getting triggered. This will really help you the next time you're around that person. But when you are around a person, when you are in one of those extreme situations where there's a lot of pleasantness, or in this case, a lot of unpleasantness, of course, if, if we really um, not don't have the, the mindfulness of the degree of presence to be skillful, then really getting out of there is a good strategy. But if that, for whatever reason, can't happen, then what I find useful is to stay deeply connected with the experience in my body. So it's like we're too caught at this point to like demand that we be skillful in what we say, what we do. But what we can hope to do still, even when we're really caught and in a sense lost in our angry thoughts, believing our angry thoughts, what we can do is stay very connected with the body and basically aware of the damage we're doing by indulging, by believing the angry thoughts and engaging in this, whatever, this interaction, this unskillful interaction. It's still to our advantage to notice the damage that's being done because in the long run, that will reduce the tendency to stay in these situations and to act in this way. The worst thing is to be oblivious to the damage that's being done. And then years later, we realize, oh my God, I wish I had never done that. I wish I had walked out of the room. But if we're at least somewhat aware of how the heart is, how constricted the heart is, how tight, how reactive, just viscerally feeling the body would give us a clue at how destructive it all is and keep reminding us to do what we can to prevent, to abandon and prevent. Thanks. A little bit of time left if someone else says yes. It's yeah. Steve, right? Yeah. I just wanted to share mm -hmm. an experience on the, when I'm sitting. Uh, I, I do like to think that sitting is kind of like a, it's like a mental lab for real life as far as dealing with the agitation. Yeah. But some, and it, I, for me, I find it really helps, or I think it's helped over the, the time I've been sitting on regularly is to sit at the same time every day. 
I just haven't really a regular practice, but there are times when I, I'm not able to, I have to sit at odd times, and those are the times when I, it's more easy, I'm more easily distracted or agitated. I, I have a, a trick or a technique, you might call it, uh, to dealing with heavy, heavy duty agitation. I call it down at the, down at the, down at the DMV, where, they, where they're always calling out your number or saying mm -hmm. next, and whenever a thought arises, the, the awareness just goes next. And the thought goes, and it pops another one, next, <laughs> next. And, and I find that after I do this for a while, and I just, the mind becomes, the, the thoughts, the thought well becomes exhausted. And you do, or I do, find that I'm able to, uh, the agitation level, you do the, the satisfaction or the unsatisfaction of the thoughts. It really doesn't matter if you delve into it, delve into a thought, or if you just say next onto the next one, and you're thinking about Obama, or you're thinking about playing second base, or you're thinking about uh, cleaning the garage. Yeah. Next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, this is a good place to end, Steve, because it's a, I think a very good example of what the Buddha meant by guarding the senses. Now, in this case. Steve is guarding which sense, right? Not one of the five physical senses. He's really talking about guarding the mental sense, thoughts and images in the mind. And the way to be a good guard of the mind is not to be fooled or tricked or seduced by the content. So what I'm imagining is happening to Steve is when he says the word next in his mind, it's the cause for his awareness, his mindfulness, to clarify. So the next is what he's seeing about this thought isn't the content. He's seeing that it's just another thought. He's seeing that it's thoughting as opposed to, oh, it's this thought, it's this content. But it's really reducing it to just a mental phenomena where it doesn't matter if it's a mental phenomena about Obama or about playing baseball or about a vacation. It's just the next thing. And so it's really stripping away the seductiveness of the content and just seeing it as a natural, empty phenomenon. Empty in the sense that it doesn't have to be taken personally. It can be seen as just the next thought. Mark, it's, it's, it's sometimes I think that these thoughts, it's just they're as uncontrollable as the weather. Yeah. It, it, is, like, it is like mental weather. Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. Where the hell do these, all these thoughts come from? Yeah. So that's what, that again is the example of mindfulness with discernment. It's not just seeing thoughts, it's the cumulative wisdom. Wisdom is just the effect that comes from seeing things as they are. So when we start to notice through years of practice that thoughts are impersonal, then wisdom and mindfulness come together. And that's when we can guard the sense gate, in this case, and we prevent the mind from needless spinning. Because there are a lot of doors, if we let the mind go there, it could be two hours. And, and it, this has real negative consequences, because if I let myself spin in craving or spin, it, spin in aversion, then when I'm done sitting and I go see my wife, that aversion is now well-oiled. And I'll just find something to be averse with my wife about, or the world about. And then that just keeps, you see how it sets, what it sets in motion? This world, like it is, is what it sets in motion. And so, we'd like a different world, I think. And we'll pick it up next week. And I'll leave more time next week to share. So really learn what you can learn about preventing and abandoning 
this next week and we'll pick it up. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the word. The word. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.